today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. You may be seated. Gracious God, be with us now. We need you to understand these words. But even as we do that, Lord, help us to see you who are behind these words, that we may come away encouraged, that we may come away having a, another glimpse of your goodness and your glory, that you may be praised and worshipped because you deserve all of that. In your name we pray. Amen. So good morning. My name is Sam. I'm on the team here. I don't know if you've noticed, but this passage is not easy. Um, at, at our CG, I was sharing that we were going through this passage this Sunday and a couple of them decided to crack open their Bibles to take a look and you could see the, oh. <laughs> so let, let, let's, let's state the obvious up front, okay? This passage is not easy. This passage has been misunderstood and misinterpreted by many, many people. This, this passage has been used wrongly to justify abuse, cover-up of abuse, and marginalization of women. This passage has been held up by many as a supreme example of everything that is wrong and outdated with Christianity. An obstacle to the faith of many, perhaps even an obstacle to the faith of some of you here this morning. Can I say, this is one of the reasons why we do expository preaching at Christ City. <laughs> we preach through whole books of the Bible and every text in that book, even the difficult ones, because we believe that all of Scripture is inspired by God. All of Scripture is God's good and authoritative word. And so my prayer for us this morning is that by God's grace, we would see this passage not as, not as an obstacle, but as an opportunity. As we depend on God, we will see this as an opportunity to, to, to be encouraged in our faith and, and, to have, and to have, a like I prayed just now, to have a glimpse 
of God's goodness. So let's get started. Are you excited? <laughs> I'm excited. We're going we're gonna to walk through this passage, and we have four points to help us keep track of what's going on. Okay? I'm not going to give you the four points now, but just know there are four points. And don't worry, they're not equal in length, and we will keep to our time. So our first point is this, the context and the problem. The context and the problem. So reading a passage like this can feel like driving in Vancouver. I remember the first, when we first arrived, we realized we just keep getting stopped at the traffic lights. And then even when the lights are green, the person in front always wants to suddenly filter left without signaling. And then so you, you, you filter to the right, but then there are all these cars that are parked along the side, and then you want to filter back in, but then there's a whole line of cars and, and you, you get stuck. And that's how it can feel with this passage, can't it? There are so many roadblocks, so many things to get stuck at that sometimes it's very easy to forget where we're even going. And so 10 verse 31 is key for us here to help us remember where we've been and where we're going. It summarizes the previous section, chapters 8 to 10, which John concluded with us last week, but it also sets up our passage today and anchors it in the topic of glorifying God. Let's look at it together. 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything is for God's glory to honor and praise Him. That's what we've gone through. And chapters 11 to 14 take the principle of 1031 and apply it to three areas of public worship. That's that's where we're going. Our passage today applies 1031 to the first area of public worship that Paul wants to talk about, the topic of head coverings. And so in verse 2, Paul starts by by commending, praising the Corinthians for trying to follow what he taught them. Let's look at it. Now I commend you, he writes, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, we've only got one half of the conversation and Paul doesn't say exactly what the traditions are, even though the Corinthians know what it is. But from the context, we can surmise that the traditions and teachings are probably about public worship, about freedom in Christ, and about equality between men and women. But even as they have They're commended for following the instructions. There's a problem. Look at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. See, the setting we can see is public worship where men and women are praying and prophesying. So what is prophecy? A helpful way to see it is this. It's applied theological teaching, encouragement, and exhortation to build the church. I'm going to say that again. We can summarize prophecy as applied theological teaching, encouragement, and exhortation to build the church. Okay, so now I know. I know that there are lots more things to be said and debated about what prophecy is. But I'll be honest with you, I don't have the time. And I wanted to save Brett some juicy bits to preach about when he comes back. And so we're going to go to that more in detail in chapter 14. But for where we are, just remember, 
verses 4 to 6 are sort of like a signpost for us. They tell us the direction we're going. They tell us what the, the main problem was. And the main point we are to remember as we unpack the rest of this passage. Paul is saying, when participating in public worship, dress and conduct yourselves in such a way that you honour yourself and your spiritual head. Think not just of yourselves, but others. Specifically, we see that there were some men who were praying and prophesying with their heads covered. And there were some women who were praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered. And this, Paul says, dishonours their heads. I'm just summarizing what's going on in the verses, but there's a lot going on here, isn't there? What, what does Paul mean by head? He explains it in verse 3, which, is, which gives us the principle of headship. That's our second point for today, the principle of headship. Look at verse 3 with me. Paul writes, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul is talking about three relationships here. Christ is the head of man, the husband is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. Now, if you're reading another translation, it probably reads, the head of the woman is the man, or, or something like that. The ESV, which is what we're reading today, very, in my opinion, helpfully clarifies for us that the relationship Paul is talking about specifically is between husband and wife. And even as we read through it, we can see that the word head is being used figuratively in verse 3, can't we? So what does it mean? Some scholars argue that the word head here means source, like the head of a river. But I would argue that's not the case, because the thing is, when you look at all the times that the word head is used in Greek literature, and, and, and someone went and did a study of the 2,500 times it was used, not just in the Bible, but all of Greek literature available to us, there's very little evidence that authors ever used head to refer to source. So that's what it doesn't mean. But what, so what does it, does it mean? There are two ways we need to understand what Paul means by head. The first is in terms of prominence. And I need to say that I'm going into some of the technical details because as you read about this, these are the various arguments that are going to be brought up and I want you to have some handholds to think about how to navigate it. So the first is we need to understand it in terms of prominence. The head being the one whose reputation is most directly either honoured or shamed by the actions of others. That's prominence. And when you read through this passage and as we understand the honour-shame culture that's going on here, that, that makes a lot of sense. But there's another sense that Paul is using the word head, and we need to hold both of these together. Paul is also using the word head to indicate a dynamic of authority and submission. Why do I say this? Well, verse 10 makes clear to us there's a dynamic of authority going on around here. Ephesians 5, which is the only other place where the words man, woman, and head are used in the same passage, we can see that there's clearly an element of authority. But also, when we think about God the, God the Father and God the Son, in passages like 1 Corinthians 15 and John 8, there again, if you look at it, there's a clear sense of Jesus' submission to the Father. I, I give these because as we chew through these verses, it's really important that we go and interpret Scripture using Scripture. 
Now, there's so much to unpack for all three of these relation, headship relationships, but I'm going to spend most of our time unpacking the relationship between husband and wife because firstly, it's the most misunderstood, but also because understanding it is so important to understanding the entire passage. So what does it mean for the husband to be the head of his wife? I'm going to explain it, and then I'm going to give a whole bunch of qualifiers, okay? I'm going to explain it, and then leave room in your notes a whole bunch of qualifiers, okay? Here it goes. Headship between husband and wife means for the husband to take on the responsibility of authority and leadership that is expressed in self-sacrifice as he submits to God, and for the wife to come under the authority and leadership of her husband that is expressed in voluntary submission. I'm going to say that again. For the husband to take on the responsibility of authority and leadership that is expressed in self-sacrifice as he submits to God, and for the wife to come under the authority and, and leadership of a husband that is expressed in voluntary submission. You know, I spent so long trying to talk about authority without using the word authority. Because so many of us have only terrible experiences of authority. So many of us only associate authority with inferiority and inequality. But rather than avoid the word, I chose to use it in the end because I think it's better for us to redeem it, to understand it the way that God intends for us to understand it because there is a type of authority that is good, that does not mean inequality or inferiority and it ultimately gives God glory. So now for the qualifiers. Firstly, headship does not mean a difference in status or value. It does not mean any sense of inferiority or inequality. We need to be clear here. Men and women are equal in status and value and competency. Genesis 1.27 tells us that both men and women were created in God's image. And bear in mind, in an era where women were seen as lesser than men, for Christians to hold this view was supremely countercultural. The headship of God over Christ is really important for us to understand what's going on here. God is three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are co-equal with each other in power and in glory. If you didn't hear me the first time, I'm going to say it again. Headship does not mean that one is inferior. It does not mean any form of inequality in status or value or competency. But, as you see with the Trinity, while all persons are equal, they are different. They are distinct. Which is the second qualifier. Headship does mean a difference in roles. You see, the role of the head is to take up self-sacrificial authority and leadership. The husband takes up the authority while at the same time submitting to the authority of Christ and learning from the authority of Christ. But this authority is not authoritarian. It's self-sacrificial. And again, we need to be really clear here. Throughout history, men have used their positions of authority to impose expectations on women that are, frankly speaking, unbiblical. 
throughout history, there are those who have imposed their own sinful preferences and cultural biases into their understanding of gender roles and authority. And we need to be clear, this has resulted in a toxic masculinity that has been abusive and misogynistic, disguised as biblical manhood. We want to be clear here, this, uh, this toxic, abusive, misogynistic masculinity is disgusting. It is antithetical to the gospel. It looks nothing like the headship that Jesus models for us, which is what? Death on the cross. See, true biblical headship is expressed in self-sacrificial love. Husbands, if we do not live with our wives' best interests at heart, or if we can't remember the last time we sacrificed something for our wife, we have a problem. If we do not live first and foremost with submission to Christ as our authority, we have a problem. For some of us, this is a wake-up call to take up the responsibility of self-sacrificial authority and leadership. But for some of us, this is a warning against any hint of abuse or harshness with our wives, not just physically, but verbally, emotionally, and even spiritually. Christ City is not a church that tolerates any form of abuse of any sort. So women, if there is abuse in your household or even a fear of abuse in your household, that's not right. Please reach out to someone. You can reach out to me, any of the elders. You can reach out to Kendra, your CG leader. Reach out to someone you can trust because that is not right. See, the example of Christ's voluntary submission to the Father is so important here, isn't it? Voluntary submission means submission is not something the head coerces or forces or manipulates. Submission should never be demeaning. The submission is voluntary, not out of an inferiority in value or worth or even competency. So as a Singaporean, I had to do two years of military service. And there was one time while I was a trainee at training school with absolutely no rank to speak of, I got injured. And so instead of participating in the field camp with everyone else, I was in the training shed, um, which is like a sheltered place with all, where all the officers were, all these people who far outranked me. And I remember when, when it was time to sleep, I went to go and get one of those camp beds for myself. And I got scolded by one of the officers. He said, those camp beds are not for you, they're for the officers. You wait till they've all gotten a bed for themselves and then if there's an extra one, you can take it. 15 years on, I still remember that event so clearly because he made me feel so small, so inferior. I don't even deserve the bed. <laughs> That's not what's happening here. Okay? Biblical headship comes out of a relationship of mutuality and equality. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. 
For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. You see, the word nevertheless is Paul's way of highlighting, underlining these verses. He says, pay attention. Lest you get it wrong, pay attention. Differences in roles are rooted in mutuality and equality. See, men and women are equal in status and value, both under God's authority, both from God, both needing each other to glorify God. It's not the language of military rank, it's the language of dance partners. It's only together, living out our different roles as equals, that we can fully manifest God's glory to the world. And so with this understanding of headship, we're in a better position to unpack what Paul is saying in verses 4 to 6. I'm going to read it again. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. So, again, because we only have one half of the conversation, it's difficult for us to tell exactly what these head coverings were referring to. But, we, but the point is still clear anyway. For men, Paul may have been referring to external coverings. We have evidence from the time period that Roman priests pulled their togas over their heads while offering sacrifices or participating in pagan religious rituals. So Paul may have been saying that men covering their heads would have been an association with idolatry. Alternatively, Paul may have been talking about long hair, which in the cultural context may have led to suspicions of homosexual behavior. And as Paul wrote all the way back in chapter 5, this went against God's created order and purposes. Either way, as you can see, the, the main point is the same. Men covering their heads in public worship bring shame both to themselves and to Christ, their spiritual head. For the women, again, Paul may have been referring to a lack of external covering. We know from historical evidence that at the time, respectable women always wore some kind of head covering in public or or tied their hair up. But Paul may also have been referring to hair length. We know from the time that having a shaved head was often an indication of, of adultery for women. See, again, regardless of whether it's an external covering or hair length, the point is the same. Appearing in public with an uncovered or shaved head went against norms of modesty. So again, lots of roadblocks. Before we get lost in all these roadblocks, let's remember where we're going, okay? Paul's main point in this passage is to apply 1031 to public worship. When participating in public worship, dress and conduct yourself in such a way that you honour yourself and your spiritual head. Paul unpacks his main point on head coverings by then making an argument from honour and shame in verses 7 to 12. That's our third point. Let's look at verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. This is another example of Paul trying to make things clearer by making things less clear. (laughs) Verse 7 is meant to explain. That's why you have the word for. But it is utterly confusing. 
So what does it mean? We're going to go through it very slowly. We need to clarify, this verse does not mean that only men reflect God's image and women don't. I can understand why we would think that. That's not what it's saying here. Why? Genesis 1.27. Both men and women were created in the image of God. You see, we need to if we've misunderstood it, it's, possibly, it's probably because we don't understand the meaning of the word glory. The meaning of glory here is really important. You see, the word glory has, has several meanings. And in this passage, Paul is using it in the sense of honour. In the sense that the man's actions honour God and the woman's actions honour man. Okay, so it's about honour. <laughs> then why would Paul say that man's actions honour God and that woman's actions honour man? That sounds biased. You see, there's a cultural explanation. Paul is saying that in their cultural context, the woman's action of uncovering her head in public immediately dishonours her husband. That's how it was culturally at the time. Paul is not saying that women's actions don't honour or dishonour God. Rather, in the culture of the period, a woman's clothing more immediately reflected on her husband than herself. That was the culture at the time. So in the cultural context, the man's actions more immediately reflect on God, but the wife's actions more immediately reflect on her husband. That was the cultural explanation, but there's also a theological explanation. You see that from verses 8 to 9. You see, Paul uses God's order of creation to explain headship. And why is it that the person's spiritual head is most immediately honoured? Verses 8 and 9. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. For, from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Paul is citing the, the creation account, the account of how God created the world and men and women in, from Genesis 1 and 2. He's explaining the headship of the husband as being rooted in the order of creation. Because man was created first and the woman was created from man and to complement man. Now, we need to be clear here. This and it may understandably take us a while to wrap our heads around, this does not mean any form of inferiority or inequality. Andrew Wilson has a very helpful analogy. I'm going to read it out. He writes, I have an apple tree in my garden which produces apples from which we make apple crumble. You can tell Andrew Wilson is British. <laughs> the crumble is the glory of the apple. It reflects its goodness in every way and brings honour to it. And the apple is the glory of the tree. And none of the three are superior or inferior to the other two. Men and women bear God's image together and reflect God's glory on earth in different and complementary ways. Such a good way of putting it. You see, verse 7 seems so terrible at first. But that's because we're reading it with our own cultural lens. To understand what Paul is getting at and what God wants us to get from it, we need to understand it in terms of what glory means and the underlying honour and shame and headship dynamic. And we also need to understand it in terms of its cultural and theological explanations. 
It's only when we understand that, verses 7 to 9, that we can then set up verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So we can tell from the context, the symbol of authority refers to head covering. So why was it a symbol of authority? In two ways, and we need to get both ways here. Firstly, it refers to the sign of the wife honouring her spiritual head, who is her husband. But that's not all. Authority here also refers to the woman's authority to pray and prophesy. And again, think about the context of a woman being seen as less than a man. Paul is talking about the woman's authority to pray and prophesy in a public gathering. See, the point here is that if the woman went against social norms and prayed and prophesied with her head uncovered, it would distract people. It would distract them from anything she was praying or prophesying. Instead of listening, they'd be thinking, why is her head uncovered? Was she unfaithful to her husband? Is she a prostitute? It's like if I were to suddenly appear up here on Sunday without a shirt on. Don't imagine it. (laughs) You know my CrossFit stories. It's not pretty. (laughs) I could preach the greatest sermon in the world And all you would be thinking is, why hasn't he got a shirt on? (laughs) On a side note, after my last CrossFit analogy, so many good-intentioned people offered to bring me to the gym. It was hilarious. (laughs) But it's great, okay. (laughs) So as Siampa and Rosna put it, Paul's ultimate point seems to be that nothing should happen in worship that would detract from God's glory. You see, when we get caught up in the roadblocks, we miss where we're supposed to go. So the last bit of verse 10, because of the angels, probably refers to angels being present in public worship in some way. Remember in verse 10, how we, how we read about how demons, uh, there are demons that we do not see? Hebrews 1.6 and, and Revelation 8.3 suggest that when we gather to worship God together, there are angels we do not see. And Can I just say, isn't that such a glorious picture of what happens when we gather every Sunday? So again, let's recap where Paul is going and his main point. When participating in public worship, dress and conduct yourself in such a way that you honour yourself and others, especially your spiritual head. So, how do we apply all of this? Well, the general point is quite clear, isn't it? We must steer clear of any conduct or dressing that dishonors God or others, that gives the impression of sexual misconduct or idolatry. Some of you may ask, so is it okay for a man to wear a hat? Or should women all wear head coverings? In Paul's time, this principle meant that meant paying attention to head coverings because at that time, head coverings carried particular symbolism, particular weight as expressions of self-awareness and attitudes towards others. And frankly speaking, that's still the case in some cultures today. And as we want to be missional, when we interact with such cultures, we need to understand that context too. The same way that there are some cultures where your footwear matters. But for some of us, 
good application of this passage actually means examining more than what we put on our heads. It, it, it actually tells us that we need to think more broadly about the impact of our conduct and dressing on others. For many of us, we are used to thinking only of ourselves. And before we get caught up in the roadblocks of this passage, this text calls us first and foremost to change our paradigm to thinking primarily of others. How many of us come to church every Sunday thinking about others? For some of us, this might mean being more careful in how we talk to others or about others. When we serve uh, in church on Sunday or when we come to church, do we dress and conduct ourselves in a way that puts a spotlight on God or puts a spotlight on others, on ourselves? For those of us who are married, some of us might need to be more conscious in how we honour or build up our spouse, both in public and in private. Or perhaps... It's a reminder that we need to be more conscious of how we interact with members of the opposite sex. For some of us, this may mean being more intentional in indicating that we are married. For some of our cultural backgrounds, this may mean wearing our wedding ring. So, Paul has just argued his point from the perspective of honour and shame and headship. Why your dressing and conduct matters. He then goes on to argue this point from custom. That's our fourth and final point, and you've done very well. We're near the end. Okay, look at verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with a head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is for her glory. For her hair is given to her for her covering. So now we can see clearly here, Paul is talking about hair length. He may have been talking about hair all along in this passage, or he may have been talking about external coverings, and now he's talking about hair length. Either way, there are arguments to be made both ways, but the point is the same. Paul makes a reference to nature, uses this word nature, and we need to be extra, 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 extra careful about how we understand this word nature. Because the phrase, it's just not natural, is... Not helpful and abused and misused so many ways. Craig Blomberg, a scholar, puts it well. Nature is probably best understood here as that which is almost instinctive because of a long habit, a long established custom. See, the point here is not that men can't have long hair or that women can't have short hair today. That's not why Andreas cut his hair. <laughs> At least I don't think so. In Paul's context, as it is in some places even today, there was a relative difference in hairstyle between men and women. Although, we need to be clear, that's much less so in Vancouver today. Okay? Don't get caught up in the roadblocks. Paul's general point is that Christians should not try to, dis to blur distinction between sexes. God created male and female as equal, but as distinct. And so this passage calls us to ask ourselves, and it's actually very relevant for us today, do we celebrate the God-given differences between men and women? Or do we try to blur the distinction? 
See, the fight to promote equality between men and women is a good one. In fact, it was a fight being fought before it was culturally appropriate. But this fight must never be at the expense of distinction between men and women. God created male and female to be distinct, and He calls us to live into God's creation by conducting ourselves and dressing in ways that we do not blur our distinctiveness between male and female. We need to be clear here, we are not saying that we choose our sex based on cultural norms. We are saying that there are sexual differences between male and female, and that is how we know whether we're male or female. But the point here is that awareness of our cultural norms and customs is important so that we can know best how to glorify God and each other. Glorifying God and each other in the way we live out our distinct identities as male and female. So, as we, as we come to the end, and now we're really coming to the end, I know we've gone uh, through a lot of content and there are lots of things for many of us, me included, to think and pray through. And again, I just need to say, some of you may not, may, may not agree with my conclusions. You may have questions about my conclusions and that's completely fine. But I just want to say, it's important to be clear on how we came to those conclusions. And I would encourage you, rather than withdraw as you figure out what you think, to lean into the God-given community you have, your friends, your CG, and if it would serve you, myself or Kendra, any of the other elders or staff here, we would love to walk through this together. Preparing for this passage was so good for me to think about my own cultural biases and preferences and how I may or may not read them into understanding God's word. But as we end, I just want to say, as we wrestle through scripture, let's not get caught up in the roadblocks. Let's remember where we're going. Let's not lose lose sight of God's goodness and kindness, which, which holds all this together. You see, our God is not a God who leaves us to ourselves to figure out how to live. He doesn't leave us to be tossed to and fro by the ever-changing waves of our culture. The Bible was countercultural then and it will be countercultural now. But remember, God in His kindness and in His goodness reveals to us in His Word exactly how we are to live. Not so that He can control us, but so we can live into the joy we were created for. For that is how He is most glorified. And in this passage, some of us may have noticed already, God does not expect anything of us that He does not first model or enable us to do. You see, Jesus came to earth to live a life of voluntary submission. But at the same time, he came to live a life of self-sacrificial headship. Jesus submitted himself to the headship of the Father and sacrificed himself for all of us. 
And we've been given His Spirit, which pours God, God's love into our hearts and enables us to live life the way that God created us for, for our joy and His glory. And so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You can do it all to the glory of God that your joy may be complete and God may be glorified. Let's stand as we respond to God's word.